From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to my audio imaginarium. Good to be home. I don't mind Seattle. It's cold and it's damp. That's why the lady is a tramp. Sorry about that, Richard Rogers. I was in Seattle for the, uh, for the, uh, the last uh, week or so. Thanks to Patrick White and Victor Vigiani for keeping the home fires burning and filling in. Uh, I was actually listening to Victor interviewing Gene Klein and Gary Duncan about the late TV Superman actor George Reeves on my Zoomer radio app uh, while I was waiting to board the, uh, the flight from Seattle to uh, Newark last week. Great radio. Great job, Victor. And I listened to Patrick interview Dr. Joseph Farrell, who joined us last week uh, on the podcast, when I got home. They were discussing the transhumanist movement, and I'm going to be talking about transhumanism again tonight, albeit from a markedly different perspective, in just a few moments. I- I've posted some new stories to the hot news items on richardsarah.com, one of which I find particularly chilling. There are only a handful of things that I can say that truly frighten me. Being eaten alive by a grizzly bear, I'm told, is one of the worst ways you can go. Uh, Sharks, I have uh, an irrational fear of... I I don't think it's irrational. People tell me it's an irrational fear of sharks. Uh, But I'm very hesitant even to dip my toe into uh, Lake Erie. Um, I know sharks are saltwater creatures, but... Anyway, uh, and rats. The other one is rats. And this story is about rats. Not just your garden variety of rats, however. Check this out. According to scientists at the University of Leicester in the UK, in the event of a future mass extinction, rats may be the animals best suited to repopulate the world. And these scientists say if rats do take over after such a wipeout, they'd likely balloon in size. Mass extinctions have hit the Earth at least five times in geologic history, most recently, about 65 million years ago, when scientists think an asteroid hit the planet and wiped out the dinosaurs. Mammals took advantage of the newly available ecological space and ultimately repopulated and dominated the animal kingdom. Some researchers think the Earth is on the brink of its next mass extinction that could hit within the next several centuries as a result of human-induced habitat destruction and so forth. Just in the past several hundred years, thousands of animal species have become endangered, hundreds have gone extinct, many as a result of human activity. So, the tall foreheads at U of Leicester have developed a thought experiment in which they consider which animal might be the most likely to survive and repopulate the world if this purported mass extinction were to take place. And they concluded, gulp, Rats may be the best candidates. They based their hypothesis on rats' proven ability to infiltrate most major land masses and islands on the planet, as well as their persistence throughout the world, despite widespread attempts to control their populations. Other animals, such as cats, feral pigs, also do well in diverse ecosystems around the world, but they're not as widespread as rats. In the event of mass extinction caused either by human activity or a catastrophic event, Rats are theoretically the most likely mammals to be spared, given their wide extent and ability to cope in varied conditions. Giant rats ruling the planet. That's my, my, my worst nightmare. Uh, but at least a little good news. According to these same researchers, the time frame of this purported rat takeover, about 3 million to 10 million years from now. 
I may uh, probably not be around, but, well, wait and find out. You'll find that uh, and other great stories on the hot news items at richardserrett.com. Check out the news and improve, uh, check out the new and improved uh, website, richardserrett.com. You'll find that, um, uh, sorry, once you're on the homepage of that website, you'll find a little button that says subscribe to the newsletter. And I've targeted 500 subscribers before I start publishing. So I've had, um, I'm getting close, but I need, I need you to subscribe to the newsletter and then I'll start publishing. And I'm also getting some great suggestions for this yet unnamed newsletter. And you can send me your suggestion along via Twitter at Richard Serrett. Last week I mentioned Dr. Joseph Farrell was on the program with a rather dystopian view of the transhuman, uh, transhumanist movement. And uh, if you've never heard of the term transhumanism, it's kind of a worldwide philosophy, a movement, which seeks to greatly enhance human intellectual, physical, psychological capacities through emerging technologies. Transhumanists believe that technology can solve most, if not all, of our human biological constraints. Imagine being able to end all involuntary suffering, resleeve our consciousness into a machine, achieving virtual immortality. And depending on who you talk to, transhumanism is either the most dangerous idea in the world or a movement that epitomizes the most daring, courageous, imaginative, and idealistic aspirations of humanity. Tonight, I'm joined by a visual artist, a media designer, and a futurist who wants us to get creative about the future. She's been described as the first female philosopher of transhumanism, and it's a great pleasure to welcome to the program Natasha Vita-Moore. Natasha, how are you? Hello, good evening. How are you? Wonderful, thank you. Let's start with a definition. Transhumanism, what does it mean to you? Well, there's a slight difference between what it means to me on a personal, subjective basis and what it means as a philosophical worldview. Let me start with the latter. Uh, transhumanism has developed as a philosophy and worldview that has become a cultural movement, and it is also field of study. What it basically means is that it's a transitional period between being a 100% biological animal, as we are as humans, as Homo sapiens sapiens, to a time when we will have emerged with technology to a point where we are no longer exclusively biological, but embellish um, technological devices and other types of appendages to our biology for the uh, purpose of enhancing our senses and prolonging life. At that point, it becomes a transhuman stage of development. And eventually, the hypothetical outlook is towards post-human um, advancement of our species, and no one really knows what that is. It's, it's hard to forecast, and certainly it's silly to predict what that could become, but in a cybernetic environment, we would assume that it would mean a point where um, humans can exist in multiple platforms and multiple realities, for example, in cybernetic space and virtual systems, etc., so that we would diversify and continue our personhood, our identity, our sense of self and consciousness over time and over space and especially over uh, mediums. On a personal basis, transhumanism is a philosophical perspective and worldview that I've held close to my heart for many, many, many years. 
I wrote the Transhuman Manifesto in 1983, and I spent most of the 1990s working on developing the cultural movement of transhumanism. And in short, it means to me a worldview of people who are looking at problem-solving, looking at solutions to many of the consequences we face as vulnerable human beings. When we talk about our biological constraints as humans and overcoming them, uh, can you give me some specific examples, which biological constraints in particular and and which emerging technologies uh, will sort of eradicate those, those constraints? Certainly. For example, constraints include disease and injury at a basic level. For example, uh, when we discuss disease, we're talking about all sorts of genetic mutations, such as trace sickle cell anemia, different types of diseases, uh, multiple sclerosis, um, etc., to points where we develop cancer from mutation of cells and other types of diseases like ALS, etc., to a point where our body is degenerating. The brain also degenerates through diseases like ALS and Alzheimer's, senility, and uh, loss of cognition and memory. So those are natural aging diseases uh, for the most part, but the, the specific cell mutations and diseases like trace sexual cell anemia, multiple sclerosis, etc., and ALS are um, diseases that cause tremendous difficulties for human biology. So those, I mean, those, uh, the overcoming those diseases, that's something that obviously then the transhumanist movement shares with, with uh, medicine. I mean, the, the Yes, exactly, exactly. Now, the diseases that, I mean, the injuries, excuse me, forgive me, I was misspoken uh, there. The injuries that we talk about overcoming are injuries that could have uh, surmounted from car accidents or skiing accidents or even warfare where our limbs are disabled where we would need prosthetic arms or prosthetic legs. Um, from car accidents, there is a numerous number of people who have suffered um, uh, injuries to their spinal cord, cord causing um, uh, an inability to function from, say, C4 down so that one is totally paralyzed from the neck down or from the waist down, C7 down. So that would be a quadriplegic or a pedriplegic. So those are injuries that we look at using prosthetic parts to help alleviate the onslaught of lack of mobility, for example. And we're seeing great advances in robotics and artificial intelligence to develop prosthetic parts that um, are integrated into the brain, for example, that allow an individual with a prosthetic arm, let's say, to feel the not only the weight of a cup, of coffee or tea, but also feel the heat from the coffee or tea or the cold from the the soft drink or uh, iced tea, for example. So we're seeing a far advanced uh, notion of how design can uh, intervene with robotics and artificial intelligence and neurological connections to the uh, prosthetic part to really create a, a limb that is let's say, more human than human. And, and Natasha, you even envisage a, a what you call a full-body prosthetic. Explain what that would look like and how it would work. Certainly. What I envisioned in 1997, I called them Prima Post Human, and its iterative design process um, has 
brought it forward into the 21st century being called platform diverse body and substrate autonomous person. I developed this because of my own experience. I uh, suffered a tremendous uh, illness in 1980 where I was in intensive care for two weeks and almost died. And because of that, I looked at the world anew and afresh. I observed people not just as humans enjoying life, following their career, nurturing their families, etc., but people who could have some disease growing in their body that they were totally unaware of or could be in an instance uh, notice in a car accident or some other um, type of injury. So we are fragile, and that became very paramount to me in my research and my awareness, and I thought about how, as a designer, could I contribute to this growing field of life extension and looking at the advances in medicine that were so incredible. And I thought, well, what we might need is a whole body prosthetic. Given that many people's bodies have um, deteriorated, but their brains are still active, their consciousness is still active. So what if they could have a whole new body? What would that be like? And for those who have an active body, but whose brains of degenerated in their neurological or cognitive functions, what would it be like if we could back up the brain um, so that we could have a restoration of memories? I went about to design this, uh, what I call a future human prototype, based on these emotions and these um, types of perceptions about the absurdity that humans have to spend most of our lives overcoming disease. Let me just jump in here, Natasha. We'll take a time out. We'll come back. I mean, it all sounds good to me so far. Uh, are there downsides? What are the ethical considerations? We'll get into that as well. All right. The first female philosopher of the transhumanist movement, Natasha Vita Moore, media designer, futurist, and a prominent proponent of ethical means for achieving human enhancement here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Natasha Vita Moore is currently a Ph.D. candidate at the faculty. No, I'm not. Oh, I'm a Ph.D. <laughs> I'm saying congratulations. Oh, that was two years ago. <laughs> oh, wow. I've got, I've got old news here. Well, Dr. Vita Moore um, is uh, working on the radical transformation of human life that may come from the convergence of nanotechnology, biotechnology, information technology, and cognitive science. Her work has been featured in Wired, L.A. Weekly, The New York Times, U.S. News and World Report, Net Business, Teleopolis, and Village Voice, and in much and in more than a dozen documentaries. She's an advisor for nonprofit organizations, including the Center for Responsible Nanotechnology, Elcor Life Extension Foundation, Nanotechnology, Adoptive AI, Lifeboat Foundation, and is vice chair of Humanity Plus. Is that all still accurate? Uh chairman of Humanity Plus. I'm a professor at the University of Advancing Technology, and um, I'm a fellow at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, and I'm doing research at Alcor, but I'm not, I'm a member of Alcor, but I'm not part of the staff. Ah, well, an, an impressive resume, nonetheless. <laughs> we could do a whole show just on your resume, Natasha. You're uh, funny. <laughs> <laughs> I was... Uh, reading recently in, um, I think it was the Guardian newspaper, about this Monash vision system. Uh, these scientists at the, the, in Australia, basically, they're saying within the next year or year and a half, uh, they could essentially, they'll have a prototype ready that will allow the people that are completely blind uh, to see. And it, 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 I'm not, 
a, a bit of a techno peasant, but uh, from what I understand, basically it involves a brain implant which connects wirelessly to a camera which can be housed in a pair of glasses or even on the end of the of the individual's finger. Uh, and yes. so the end of blindness as we know it. I mean, I'm guessing though that that's obviously that's just the beginning. Where are you seeing? sort of the technology going in, in that specific area in terms of, you know, eradicating blindness. This is just one of the many steps that we're seeing as evidence that humans are steering our own evolution and will probably break through the, the historical domination of death over the human being. If you consider that The term death has been redefined so many different times based on our medical and scientific technology, then it makes sense that we could continue redefining it as to when a person is dead. For example, many, many years ago at the turn of the century from the 1800s to 1900s, we used to hold a mirror up to a person's nose to see if there was moisture on the mirror, and that would prove to us if a person was dead or alive. I used to do that to some of my producers. (laughs) Not you, Tim. Not you. But (laughs) oftentimes people would be buried who were still alive. Sure. Those are the grave, and so where they started putting a bell above a grave with a string going down into the coffin, so if a person did wake up, he or she could ring the bell. The dead ringer. Yeah, exactly. So it's very interesting to see how we've had to redefine when a person is dead. Now, we're also redefining what is natural to humans. If a person had been in the past born with a speech um, impediment or was deaf or mute or blind, we assume that that was their life role. Right. But now we're seeing that we can intervene through design and technology and science to eradicate the onslaught of these particular uh, situations where a person is deaf or mute or blind. And this Australian example is very on target to where we're seeing things going. So a bionic eye is just one example of the many different changes that we're going to be seeing. You asked me, where do I see this going? Is it going where we will probably totally remake the human body to where it's a very sustainable, flexible, durable vehicle for our brains and our consciousness. After all, what is the body? It's a vehicle. Certainly it's a sexual organism as well, and we enjoy our sexuality through our bodies. Uh, We enjoy dance and movement and skiing and sports and whatnot uh, through our body, but a new body would not prohibit that. It would only enable it and increase probably the satisfaction and the enjoyment of using it as a mobility device. So when we think about the body, it also includes not only the somatic sphere, which is the physicality of the body, but also the cognitive sphere, which is the brain. So in thinking about what type of bodies would we have in the future, I envision one, of course, that would be more durable and sustainable, and also a brain that could be backed up 24-7. In fact, backed up on a moment-to-moment basis, because our memories are so essential to our character and our personhood, and... You know, basically who we are, how we love, how we live life, what our aims and ambitions are, how we care about others, our level of empathy and our perceptions is totally integrated in our memories, moment-to-moment memories. Oh, there goes another one. Oh, whoops, there's another one. (laughs) Every second that goes by, a memory is implemented. And we want to gather those and remember our lives and also use them to help carve our future. 
I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the the pursuit of immortality and this idea that I've I've heard bandied about of uh, just in a, a broad stroke resleeving our consciousness. It's a very interesting term, resleeving our consciousness. Talk to me a little bit about that and some of the technologies that would be involved. Well, when we think about, I don't use the term immortality. Fair enough. Okay. What would you use? Radical life extension mm-hmm. or prolongevity or super longevity because when you think about it, what is immortality? Immortality means that you are alive forever. Uh, that's a pretty big piece of cheese to chew on. <laughs> yes. Uh, who wants to be alive forever? I'd rather be alive as long as I'm being productive, loving, and a... Uh, a person who contributes to society. That's true. And age doesn't matter unless you're cheese. <laughs> right, and then you really age and go bad. That's right. So, okay, so, but the idea of resleeving consciousness uh, for radical life extension is an okay, intriguing idea. Upload and resleeving. Okay, when we think about mind upload, we think about uh, transferring or copying the, 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 the function of the brain onto computational systems, for example, into like, say, zeros and ones computational network. So what is that basically? Um, it means that the, the performance of our cognitive properties, the functioning of the brain, could be translated from certain pulses and connections between the dendrites and the synapses onto or into certain codes based on rhythm or uh, magnitude, velocity, chemistry, etc., so that it could be transferred into a computational system and backed up, and that would provide um, a type of solid memory base for our moment-to-moment actions. Um, when we talk about resleeve, it's... Um, I'd like for you to tell me what you mean by it, then I'll give you my particular view on it. Well, again, coming from the perspective of a complete Luddite and techno-peasant, <laughs> I guess I would use the term re-sleeve to indicate that you're, you're taking, I guess, the, what is the essence, if that's even possible, if we, if, we, if we even know what the essence of a human is, which is sort of a whole other field of discourse. But uh, if we were to take the essence of a human being, and take it out of what is a you know a finite vessel vessel and place that essence in a new container that it that that is with that is a void of these biological constraints yeah exactly i think the term resleeve is 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 probably a 2013 term <laughs> Well, I'm nothing if not 2013. <laughs> right, and we're in 2014. So it's a term that's, that's pretty much gone into the certain spheres of, of knowledge. Um, but basically, it's resleeving um, can be done without the ego losing consciousness, transferring the brain to active ego instance, uh, backed in another brain, which sounds silly, so it would be backed up not in another brain, but another system. Okay function like a brain functions but backing it up into another brain is just I don't know why anyone would think that but if you want to take the brain's functioning and which contains consciousness and resleeve it into another system that would make sense rather than into another brain right right um, okay so 
uploading, resleeving continuity, this all goes back to the the issue of personhood. Resleeving is just, I'm not sure what it means exactly, but let's just say... And nor I, obviously. <laughs> pardon me? And nor I, obviously. Yeah, so I don't know who's using these terms, but I, I think you're very bright to mention that because I'm, I'm Googling it, and it looks like it's being used a bit in terms of uploading, but to simplify it for your audience... What it means exactly, I mean, not exactly, but what it means in, in as far as I understand it, um, in my own precision, is that when we think about consciousness and uploading, what we need to do is upload the functions of the brain. And the functions of the brain cause certain perceptions and behaviors, and we call that memory and all the foresight and everything that we do that's based on not only our cognitive properties, but the information that's fed to it from our central nervous system, which is basically our senses, right, our perceptions. And that forms our identity, our consciousness, from our experience, including our emotions, etc. So to back that up would be kind of strange. What we'd need to back up is the, the functioning of the neurotransmitters, and, and then that would form this other... The, parameteral of phenomenological material and the main issue here is continuity if we want to be authentic about a person and living longer or living into a stage of radical life extension or longevity outside human biology in another type of whole body prosthetic like my design primo post human or in a computational system such as in an upload you would need to focus very clearly on the continuity of a person over time. And this issue means that it's con uh, continuous, that we as people in our own consciousness, we wake up every morning and we know we're the person that we were yesterday, right? We just ass we assume we are, so therefore right. we know we are. Right. We wake up in the morning, yeah, I'm the same person I was yesterday, you have your memories of yesterday, and you go on with a certain behavioral um, tendency and maybe you feel guilt or shame or worry about something and then you sort it out and you learn from that experience and go on trying to do you know the best you can in life but this continuity of identity is essential for anyone interested in life extension because without it you would wake up the next day being sue simpson or tom thomas you know you exactly a different out. yes a different edition oh. of a magazine yes exactly so the whole issue of life extension is to prolong our identity, our consciousness of who we are now, whether it's good or bad, it's that we are now. And for those of us who want to improve our lives and be better people every day that we experience the world, that gives us hope. You know, we look at what we did yesterday, we try to do better today and hope to do better tomorrow. Sure. I mean, that seems like a, a, a Herculean task, to say the least. To, to I mean, how do you, and I'm oversimplifying, obviously, but how would you reduce that that the essence of, of what we are and this continuity to zeros and ones? No, that's a good question. You know, when you think about it, if you're a programmer, you, you see in those particular programming uh, codes. As a designer, I see in design. I look, when I walk in a room or I notice the world around me, I see it in terms of placement of design, color, just position of shape and form, what works, what doesn't work. Is there enough negative space between elements 
uh, what is the sound, the smell, the, the textures, the, the lighting, all these different elements are very foremost in my mind as a designer as, as I perceive the world around me. Now, when I'm a professor, which I am, and I'm working on my students' papers, I take on another hat. I look at words, uses of words, sentence structures, whether they're getting the logic of their argument across, and what their conclusion is. So I'm not looking at it as a designer. I'm looking at it as, as, a, log- as a logical thinker about quality of information. Let me just jump in here, Natasha. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll continue to delve into the philosophy, the movement of transhumanism with the first female philosopher of the movement, Natasha Vita Moore. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Big Brother is listening, and so are you. To The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are uh, in conversation with Professor Natasha Vitamore, Ph.D., and uh, she's a futurist, a prominent proponent of ethical means of achieving human enhancement. And we were talking about radical life extension uh, earlier, and I just wanted to allow you to to finish up on that point before I move on to uh, things like, well, a brain-computer interface. I mean, we're uh, we're now in the era of Google Glasses, but there'll be a time when we'll be able to download, you know, Wikipedia or everything that the Internet has to offer directly into our brains. Uh, But let's uh, let's pursue the the radical life extension for just a few more moments, uh, Natasha. Sure. You were you were uh, you were talking about uh, you know how one could in essence reduce uh, what it is to be human into ones and zeros. Oh yes. Well, you were asking me about that, and my reasoning here, however imperfect it is, is that for someone to see reducing it to ones and zeros, he or she would have to be able to look at it through the lens of programming or like a, a cognitive scientist or a computer scientist, etc. Whereas for me, as a designer, I look at it through shapes and forms and the elements within the environment. And uh, so that's the lens with which I see the world around me. In regards to human enhancement, radical life extension, as a designer, I look at what the problem is. Designers solve problems. We try to fill gaps. We look about the world and see where things are not functioning to a level of um, design elegance or mathematical elegance, for example, to use a a, a, a parallel spectrum here. Um, so for me, I look at the imperfection of the world in regards to disease and illness and death and the frustration and hardship on people who see their loved ones aging and dying um, before their time, for example. And as a designer, while I don't see in zeros and ones per se, I understand it if I can translate it over to uh, what works with design. If we could transfer the brain into computational systems, it would have to be done in a programming method. And only a, um, a computer scientist could articulate that in a refined way for your audience, which I'm not and I cannot. But through my own view, I can say that the brain's cognitive functioning is set on patterns of relay of information and connection of information. And the brain is an extremely complex organ, more complex than we can possibly imagine. But we can identify certain uh, communicative neurological functions that the brain performs. And we can certainly identify areas of the brain that perform certain types of functions. So with that even little bit of information that we have, 
we can translate that into computer code, much like we take words and phrases and translate it into telegraphic code, you know, dot, 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 sure. dot, 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 dot. That's a very simplistic way of, of relating this. But we can take certain actions, physical actions with a velocity and amplitude and a chemical component and translate that into other means of communication. So that's what that's all about. So if you were to transfer, for example, the brain onto a computational system, which is a a miraculous task in the first place, but cognitive scientists and neuroscientists are working on this, along with uh, computer scientists, to develop a way that we could transfer our cognition's functions into computational language so that we would be copying it, essentially. Fascinating. I mean, uh, I mean I, I, impossible to answer, I'm sure, but it, could you care to speculate? Uh, well, we're going into a break here. Well, I'll ask you on the other side, but just in terms of, you know, when this truly post-human world will arrive, I mean, are we talking 50 years, 100 years, 20 years? We'll find out. Oh, okay, okay, good we'll, question. We'll, um, uh, we'll do that when we come back. 2014. Natasha Vita Moore, my guest here on The Conspiracy Show. Back with more. Don't you dare go away. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Just a few moments to remain with Natasha Vita Moore, and we're talking about the future. And uh, she says it's time to get creative about the future. We're talking about radical uh, life extension and uh, overcoming uh, certain biological constraints uh, through the emerging technologies. We're talking about transhumanism. And um, I was asking you if you could speculate on, on when this truly post-human world might arrive. Uh, let's see. We're in 2014 now, so when you think we haven't gotten that far within the past decade or two, but we've gotten far as in regards to our awareness of what's possible. With the emerging and speculative technologies of nanotechnology and its offshoot nanomedicine, biotechnology, and all the different types of biotechnologies, transgenesis, stem cell cloning, genetic engineering, etc., and then to include information technology, which brings about the um, advances in artificial intelligence and artificial general intelligence, and then to top it off with cognitive and neuroscience, which ties neatly into our previous um, discussion on uploading and um, uh, backing up the human brain, we've come a long way. Certainly, yes. Wow, it's amazing. So what does the future hold? I'm not someone to make predictions, but I will make forecasts based on probabilities and solid possibilities and looking at shifts and trends and whatnot with the awareness that there are always tipping points and always unintended consequences, so no one better ever make predictions of when things will happen because you end up making a fool of yourself or, or else you win the lottery, so it's a big gamble. With this in mind, I would say that probably 2050 we will see whole body prosthetics. By 2050. In 2014, 10 years is 2024, probably torsos in 2024. 2034, which is another 10 years, which is, you add that on. Uh, yeah, okay, and I'm leaving some space for problems and complications, but I, I think 2040, but 
to give it some extra time, um, 2050, definitely the post-human will be here. 2040, we'll see whole body prosthetics and thinking about more articulately about backing up part of our memory, if not the whole brain. It's going to take some time, but we will be able to um, back up part of our memory. And um, as far as having a post-human, now, what is a post-human? No one really knows what a post-human is. There's been numerous theoretical suppositions and philosophical conjecture, but bottom line, a post-human is when a human can exist both in biological uh, time and space and also computational time and space and other formats yet to be known. So this would mean we would uh, be in real time in the biosphere and also in virtual sphere, which is computational systems, for example, like the metaverse or really enhanced and sophisticated environments like Second Life. And um, I would say in 30, 40 years that will be prevalent. Um, but again, no one knows. These are all uh, suppositions based on probability. So much to discuss, so little time. I mean, I'll have to have you back on, oh. but I wanted to, to talk a little bit about brain-computer interfaces. And I know we've had, I guess, uh, going back to the mid-90s, the first sort of human, <clears throat> the first devices implanted in humans. So we had sort of a, a direct uh, a pathway between a brain and some external device, like a computer. And I remember where I'm sitting now, we're in the shadow shadows of the CN Tower. And a few years ago, I interviewed a gentleman who was working with Steve Mann here in Toronto. And I, I, don't, I'm, I don't know if you know Steve Mann. He's sure. considered the first human cyborg. And they had developed this brain-computer interface that would allow someone sitting in Vancouver, uh, and based on their thoughts, they could, they could turn the lights on the CN Tower different colors, some 5,000 miles away. And <clears throat> so I'm just wondering, what is the state now of, of brain-computer interfaces or mind-machine interfaces? Well, with a little bit of history, long before Steve Mann, at the University of Illinois, many, many years ago, was a department called Brain-Computer Interaction or Brain-Computer Interface. And um, Von Forster created this department um, as an offshoot of the um, cybernetic group of individuals who had met at the Macy conferences when early cybernetics was developed um, and one of the leads there is Norbert Weiner, who actually was um, one of the advocates of cybernetics. So we're going back to early computer science around the Second World War and how it advanced. The uh, University of Illinois, with its brain-computer uh, interaction interface department, um, was looking at how to link the brain and the brain's functionings and the computer and uh, much work was done back then. And again, I have to give a nod to Von Forster for this work. But with a lot of money being invested in this and not many returns, because you know, a lot of this stuff you know, is hypothetical and supposition, and sometimes it just doesn't come about in a timely fashion. But in any case, because of that, there was a long, long winter as far as all this is concerned. And over the years, we've seen uh, many people working with wearable technology, especially out of MIT. And Steve Mann is one, Kevin Warwick is another, Laura Biloff is another. Individuals who work in the field of uh, wearable technology that come up with very interesting ideas. None of it is as relevant as what's going on in medicine. In medicine, we're looking at 
um, physicians who are working with individuals with certain types of uh, issues, uh, physiological or cognitive issues, and they work with the brain in looking at the parts of the brain that need to be stimulated, for example, and stimulating those areas uh, through certain types of injected impulses, et cetera, to cause reactions. So I would say the major work is being done in medicine, not in wearable technology. Now, as far as giving a nod to Steve Mann, he's doing some very interesting work with susvalence, where he's surveilling the surveillers. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing there. And he's been wearing uh, wearable technology for quite some time, videotaping, let's say, or recording his life. But sometimes one wonders, um, when you're recording your life, you're also recording the people around you. And maybe those people don't consent to being recorded. So, yes, uh, he then becomes so, the surveiller. Yeah, so maybe if you're you're talking to Steve and he's recording it, you want to say, hey, look, I don't want to be recorded, and he records it. That's an infringement on your personal rights. I had the occasion of interviewing uh, Steve for a documentary, and, and I, it was rather uncomfortable, I must say. I, I, I mean, I, it was kind of ironic. I mean, I was I had a I microphone like in front it. of him, and he was... Turn that bloody thing off. <laughs> Give me some space. Well, that's the thing, though. He, you, You're never off. I mean, he's inundated with, you know, emails and, and uh, I mean, there's something to be said for being totally disconnected. But I, I can't imagine going through life when, going through life where you're constantly uh, inundated with uh, with emails and messages and, and uh, you know, you just, you, you never shut it off. Yeah, I guess, I guess that works for some people. I'm more zen-like. I really need my time to just walk and not think and just be, you know, walk my dog through the park or just work in my garden. And I don't want other people's thoughts in my head, you know. I, I just want to be. What, so what, what? I, I think that's a personal thing, you know. I think Steve has every right to do what he does, but I, I do think that when he's recording other people, he needs to get a release. I think that's only fair. True, true enough. Uh, just a, a couple minutes left and, and uh, a lot to cram in here, but just leave us with some parting thoughts because I know one of the things that, that, that uh, you're concerned about are, are, is achieving, achieving these enhancements but in an ethical manner. Uh, what are some yeah. of the ethical issues that you're confronting? Okay. Oh, 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 gosh, there's so much. Oh, so tasty. Okay. Let's just part with this. I think that if we extend life and if we enhance the human beyond biology, that's an individual choice. And it should never, ever be a coercive type of endeavor. For those who want to enhance, it is their right to do so. For those who do not want to enhance, it is their right to remain 100% biological humans. And I think we need to have a stronger sense of diversity and multiplicity in culture. Uh, not only in the Western world, but around the world. And here comes an issue of morphological freedom, which I think is going to be a very strong human right in the coming years. Morphological freedom means that a person has a right to enhance his or her body, cognitive and somatic, and a person has a right never to be coerced into enhance, basically. And I think that's going to become paramount. Um, and because of this, I think we're going to see... Um, not a split like the haves and the have-nots, but we're going to see that those who want to, if they uh, choose to, will probably drive the marketplace down, just like we've seen with cell phones and televisions and computers and everything, so that 
the price becomes more accessible to people who don't have a lot of money. I don't have a lot of money, so I'm not an elitist in a sense. I'm just a, you know, someone who thinks about these things a tremendous amount. The ethical issues here um, don't have so much to do with bioethics and a lot of uh, positioning and politics and, um, and policymaking. It has more to do with what is human rights and what are civil rights. And we need to contemplate that a great deal and then realize that we're not all the same. We all want different things. And to allow that, as long as we don't hurt or damage someone else or the environment, then it ought to be an individual choice. What do you mean by let's get creative with the future? With the future, you know, instead of thinking of it as a linear type of chronological future where we think about the, the ticking talk of aging and we die, we leave, make way for the young and then we spread our genes and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that we're going to see a massive cultural change already today. We live in an environment where we see our babies, our adolescents, our teenagers, ourselves, our Parents, our grandparents, and our great-grandparents all existing simultaneously within a time frame. This is unique. In the past, it had been maybe your child, yourself, and your grandparent. But now we're seeing generations coexisting uh, and also sharing much of the same parts of culture. The, new, the 60s is the new 40s. The 40s is the new 20s. You know, you think about that. Uh, it kind of erases these the dogma um, predeterminants of what you're supposed to be as you grow in age, not to reduce the quality of of elegance and gratitude and uh, and um, politeness and manners and you know wisdom and all those things. Those are precious commodities, but that we can live older in our 80s and 90s and still be vital into our hundreds and still be vital and worthwhile contributors to society. Well, that's great news for us Rolling Stones fans. We can enjoy Mick and Keith for another 50 years. (laughs) That's very funny. Natasha, I have uh, enjoyed our conversation immensely, and I've learned a lot, and I thank you for uh, this last hour. Oh, thank you. Thank you for your questions. They were they were articulate and, and stimulating, and you caused me to think a little bit, so I really appreciate that. Well, I hope and we can do this again sometime. Thank you. Natasha Vita-Moore, media designer, futurist, and a prominent proponent of ethical means of achieving human enhancement. The website, richardserrett.com, new and improved. Check it out. We'd love to hear your comments. Also, don't forget, subscribe to the newsletter. Once we hit the big 500, I'll start publishing... And as always, follow the truth.